We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 43. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you considered yourself completely in the hands of God? Everything you did, everything you said, you were, you were resting completely and securely in the hand of God. I want you to think about that thought for just a minute. And I'd like to ask you, how would you live differently? What would change if you truly saw yourself in God's sovereign good hand? What would change? What things would remain the same? Well, after what we saw last week, when we looked at Genesis chapter 42, we saw some people that were going to begin to experience the change that realizes that indeed they are in the hand of God. Let me just bring you up to speed if you're just joining us this morning here. But we've been studying and looking at the life of Joseph as it's been revealed starting in Genesis chapter 37. And you'll recall that there was a great famine that hit the land of Egypt and not only Egypt, but all the world. And the situation was such that there was a man that rose from slavery, from prison, to actually come to be the prime minister of Egypt. His name, Joseph. And the final part of the book of Genesis covers his life. And in this situation, remember from last week, the famine was so severe that Joseph's brothers, even though they had sold him into slavery about 20 years ago, their family up in the land of Canaan is now destitute and starving. And so Jacob, their father, sends these boys back down to Egypt to buy some food so their families will not starve to death. And it's in this situation when Joseph brothers, the very same ones that sold him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver, are before him. Joseph realizes who they are, but they themselves, these 10 brothers, they, they don't know who he is. They can't recognize him because it had been about 22 years since they sold him as a 17-year-old boy into slavery. The last time they saw him, his hands were tied. They had, they had pulled him out of the pit they had thrown him in, and they had sold him into slavery. And the last time they saw him, he was a 17-year-old boy going off to his death. But you remember, as we've gone through this book, that God took him and changed him and transformed him in some of the hardest places of life. So much so that he was, he was raised to the top position, the prime minister of Egypt. He, he looked completely different. The reason that the boys couldn't recognize him is that he was unrecognizable to their sight. They thought he had died, but now here standing before him is this bronzed man. He wears a gold chain that symbolizes this fact that he has been invested by Pharaoh himself as the prime man. He is the prime minister. He has a signet ring on his hand. That ring is to mark all the documents and laws that this man simply speaks. People bow down and do homage to him. In Egyptian custom, he had shaved off all of his hair and he was... He was strong. He was clothed in royalty. He had a chariot that he rode in that was decked out. And everywhere he went, people bowed down. In fact, Pharaoh said, no one can even lift a foot unless you say so. And so we found the scene last week where these boys were in front of their brother. They bowed down to fulfill a dream that God had given him, actually two dreams that God had given Joseph, that your family will bow down to you and recognize that I have raised you up. For leadership, not only in the land, but in the world. Well, now from a casual observer standpoint, you would think that this man, Joseph, he was the mastermind of sparing Egypt and perhaps a lot of the world 
the dire effects of starvation from this famine. Because God, remember, remember the situation? God had raised him up while he was in prison. He interpreted two dreams for a cupbearer and a baker. And that actually got him out of prison several years later because Pharaoh had a dream that couldn't be interpreted. So the cupbearer says, well, I hate to bring up some bad things that I did before, but you remember the one day when you were really upset and you threw me into prison? There's a guy in there that, that actually interpreted a dream and it came true exactly the way he said. Pharaoh brings this man out, brings Joseph out, tells him his dream. Joseph tells him, listen, God has revealed to you there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And this is what you should do. You should save 20% of each year out of the good years so that there will be grain for all of the people. And so he does, and Pharaoh puts him in charge. And you would think that, man, this guy is just sharp. But the secret of Joseph's life, the signature chapter is chapter 39, because it tells us how in the world he functions so differently. Four different times it says the Lord... Yahweh was with him. God was with him. God was with him when he was a slave. That's why he prospered, even though he was in difficult situations. He prospered when he was thrown into prison and accused falsely because he had he had resisted the advances, the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. One day uh, she was coming on to him. He just runs as she grabs his coat. And that ended. He ended up in prison. How could you resist that kind of temptation? You always can when you realize that the Lord is with you and he's your strength. And even in prison, he prospered. He actually was overseeing these different people. And when Pharaoh called him out, Joseph said, let me make one thing clear to you. God alone is able to give you the interpretation for God is the one who's revealing the future of the world. That is the secret of this man. And last week we found a situation when the brothers came back. Joseph confronts his brothers with God himself. It's staggering. You might want to put a mark in it, but in Genesis 42, verse 18, after saying, listen, I think you boys are spies. I'm going to put you in prison and you're going to have to send one of you back to go and tell I want my that youngest brother. He hasn't revealed who he is, but I want your youngest brother to come back. I want to make sure that you're not liars, that you are, like you say, quote unquote, honest men. And he says, verse 18, chapter 42. Now, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear Elohim. I fear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the Egyptians had 2,000 plus gods. And they are encountering this man who is totally in charge of Egypt. And he says, I fear your God. I fear Elohim. They're like, how could that possibly be? And they are so, they become so unraveled that they actually start feeling the guilt. And they actually, in, in chapter 42, they start talking about, we should have never thrown our brother into that pit or sold him to slavery. Now his distress has come on us. And then remember, Joseph sends them back, back to their father with a bunch of food. And he puts the money in their sack. And as they're going their way, they make a stop and they realize that the money is in their bag and verse 28 is kind of the turning point where the boys start seeing themselves in the hand of God. Look at verse 28 in chapter 42. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been in returned and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? This is the first time these men who will eventually be the patriarchs of Israel, the head of the 12 tribes, ever reference God and say his name. What has God done to us? 
And so they find themselves in a situation where they realize that they're in the hand of God. They come and they tell their dad all about it. Jacob is like, no way. In fact, you can see it in verse 38. He says, Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you. And look how he says, it's my son. He shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead. He's thinking that of Joseph. He alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, the way you are going in life, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol, the the abode of the dead, in sorrow. And he says, I will not do it. But let me tell you something. When you see yourself in the hand of God, you begin to respond to life differently. And we're going to see this in, in Judah's life, in Jacob's life, and in Joseph's life. Joseph, Jacob makes the statement, there is no way I will not let you bring this boy down. You took my other son from, from Rachel and you, you killed him. I am not going to release him to you because you'll probably do the same. You will not have my son. He is basically saying, no way. Now, you might think like, you know, man, if, if I was Jacob, I would... I know that God's going to work this out. No big deal. I, I would have just gone along with it and said, okay, yeah, you know. But he doesn't respond that way. And let me ask you, is that how you really would respond? Aren't you thankful that your biography isn't written down in Scripture? I mean, let's just think about these last couple of weeks. Did anybody have a, like what we could call a meltdown where you push the panic button, right? <gasps> oh, it's not going to work out. Right? Just, just like pretty much all of us, right? Well, that's, that's what happens here. He's saying, no way. And really, this would have been such a great opportunity for, for Jacob. He is the patriarch. He is the, the leader of his family. He could have said, I don't know why this is happening, but we're going to trust God. Kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, gather around me. Benjamin, come here. We're going to pray that God is going to do something amazing, like keep you safe, that we're going to have food to be able to live. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Rather, he just says no. He is very negative. In fact, he is very horizontal in his thinking. Let me just tell you something. If you see life horizontally and you never consider that God is at work in your world and in your life, you end up being a very negative person. It's reflected in your, your words, uh, your actions, your attitudes. They, they become like a disease. They infect people, okay? If you never see God at work or trusting him to be at work in the situations of life. Well, that's what we have in this situation here. He's completely negative. He does not have a vertical focus. A vertical focus is when we say, God... I trust you that you are at work in this situation. I don't understand how or why, but Lord, I believe you. I need you. I love you. And I trust you. Jacob at this point is not reflecting that. But there is a man who is changed. And we're going to see him as we move into chapter 43. Chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Let's make sure we all understand what's going on here. The famine is so severe 
they are about to die. What happens? The animals go first. They get sick or perhaps you're merciful and you just kill them. Otherwise, they starve to death. And once they go, you go. Sickness is start. There is simply no food to feed the children or yourself. And you start dying from disease and for starvation one after another. He's at a point where the food they've already brought down from Egypt is gone. They have nothing left. He says, we've got to go down and get some food. Go back down and get some food from Egypt. But I want, to, I want you to see a changed man. You see, when we see ourselves in the hand of God, we begin to take responsibility. Look at Judah. Verse 3, Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. Did you see how he says, our brother? You remember when, when they brought back the cloak from Joseph? You know, it was all torn up. They made, tore it up and made it look like the animals had gotten to it and they dipped it in blood. Do you remember they, what they said? Not our brother. They didn't refer to Joseph as our brother. You know how they referred to him? Your son. But there's a major change going on in Judah. He's taking responsibility. He said, if you will not send our brother with us, we will go down and buy. If you will do that, we will go down and buy you food. But he says, verse five, but if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So verse six, then Israel said, why? What in the world? Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you had another brother? But they said, hey, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And so we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? We just couldn't have known he would have said that. Well, Judah said to his father Israel, and look at this. Send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Because if we don't, we're going to die. We, as well as you and our little ones, all of us, will die unless this happens. And look at this, verse 9. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Now, I want you to remember back when we went to Genesis 38. Remember when we gave the warnings like we're going to go through this chapter? It is ultra wicked, about as bad as it gets. Depravity runs really deep. And you remember Judah was in it, that self-centered, lust-filled man who did all sorts of bad things. Remember Judah? That's, this is the same guy. But he's changed. It's the same name, but something changed in his life. You remember at the end of that chapter, in chapter 38... He is confronted with just how wicked he has become. And from that moment, a change takes place in his life. And friends, you need to know this. That is God's intent and desire for each person. Is that you and I would truly be changed as a result of a true and authentic relationship with God. But God has to break you and confront you with your sinfulness and your wickedness. If you do not see your sin, you do not see yourself as an affront to a holy God, but your actions and your attitudes and your self-centeredness, you are still in a point where you are doing life on your own. You are fooling yourself if you think you have relationship with God until you truly are broken, repent, and you come to God on his terms. 
And although the details are not all recorded in Scripture, we do see the fruit of repentance and a changed life and a changed heart in Judah. Do you know, by the way, what Judah's name means? Anybody know? It, it actually it means praise. When his parents, when he was born, his parents named him praise. Worship. Judah. And yet he disgraced his family, his name, and his God. But God specializes in transformation. And friends, if you're here today, and perhaps recently God has confronted you with the shallowness of life, your brokenness, your need for a Savior, do you know that from Judah, from the, li- the tribe of Judah, comes the Lion of Judah, who is Jesus the Messiah? Jesus who came to this earth 2,000 years ago so that you and I might always be with God if we will simply believe he's the one who has died in our place and risen to give us life. Well, you see in Judah's life, you know, when you, when you see yourself in the hand of God as Judah now does, you start to live life differently. You start to take responsibility. Let me show you something else that happens. You begin to trust God completely. Look at, we've seen some major changes in Judah. He is completely different than when we saw him in Genesis 38. Look at some changes that are now taking place even in Jacob. Then verse 11, then their father Israel, which was the other name for Jacob, said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man, carry down to the man as a present, a little balm and a little honey aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds and take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. And then verse 13, look at how he is trusting God completely. Take your brother. You remember earlier he referred to him as my son. He now says, take your brother also. And arise and return to the man. He is, he's, he's now not trusting in how he can see the circumstances from his own side. He's like, I have to trust God to work this out. He tells them to bring some presents. Apparently, uh, this is the custom in the Near East that when you approach someone who is of royalty, someone of high rank, you would present them with gifts. And these like this balm, this is like a resin that came from a tree from trees in Gilead that was used for healing. They have honey, which was probably just kind of grape juice that was boiled down. These different nuts. These were all luxuries. Myrrh was used in embalming, which was a big deal for the Egyptians because they believed that as long as you could keep the body preserved, your soul would be preserved. And they apparently didn't have myrrh. So this was a, a very uh, sought after commodity. These things were not available in Egypt. He says, I want you to bring this down. Perhaps this is all that they have left. Bring it down and give it to the man. But I want you to see that Jacob now is completely trusting God with the future of his family. Look at verse 14. And he says, and may God Almighty, literally El Shaddai, grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. El Shaddai. This is how the patriarchs 
referred to God. Remember, in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abraham and he introduces himself as I am El Shaddai. Literally, it means God Almighty. I am the almighty God, the all powerful one. That's how he introduced himself in Genesis 17. Isaac, Jacob would have remembered this. Isaac actually took Jacob and blessed him and he pronounced a blessing on Jacob. And when he did so, he pronounced it in the name of El Shaddai. And what is taking place in this scene is God. Jacob is calling upon God. El Shaddai, God Almighty, would you preserve my family Would you give us favor? Because if this does not work out, our family ends. And there's something about speaking our trust and praise to God that does something in our souls and in the hearts of others. You know, we talk a lot about we need to be trusting God. But let me tell you a real great way to develop trust in him. And that is to actually speak your words of trust in him. Speak his name and what you're trusting him with. Let your own ears hear your words as you trust in him. Well, that's what he does here. May God Almighty, Lord, would you grant us compassion in the sight of this man? Well, verse 15. So the men, with the prayer of their father, they take this present and they took double the money in their hand. And and Benjamin, who's now a grown man, And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now the scene changes and all of a sudden we see Joseph. And Joseph, verse 16, saw Benjamin with them. And he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and and slay an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. This is an amazing scene. It's kind of a flip. Remember in Genesis 37, the boys, when they were out in Dothan, they were actually taking care of the sheep and they saw Joseph coming and they they concocted a little plan. Their plan was what? Let's kill him, right? Well, Joseph sees his brothers coming and he also has a plan, but he functions on a completely different principle of life. Joseph functions under the principle of God's grace. Now he sees them. He says, listen, I want you to make a meal right now. Guilt is what plagues Jacob's sons. You've got to imagine what this journey must be like. They're thinking only the worst could happen. They may be thinking we're dead. We're going to show up and this guy that Pharaoh put in charge, he's going to kill us. Maybe Simeon's already dead. Maybe it's going to be a torturous death. They are guilt. They feel guilty over the fact that they had forsaken their own brother. They are guilty over their life and how they've lived and they are making their way to Egypt And Joseph gives the order, I want you to make a banquet at 12 o'clock. We're going to eat with these guys. Now, you've got to imagine the scene when Joseph actually sees his brother Benjamin, perhaps coming from a distance. He hasn't seen this boy for over 22 years. You've got to think that there was just this huge lump in his throat. His heart just started pounding as he saw the, the one brother he's related to completely. The only other son that was born of Rachel. He gives this ex, he gives this the steward an order. Imagine the steward. He's like, you want to eat with these Hebrews? You, you want to? I mean, these guys remember the, the Hebrews and all Canaanites. They, they they were they were unshaven. They had like hair everywhere. And like the Egyptians, they couldn't handle that. That just made them feel totally uncomfortable. They didn't like that. And, and he's like, what? These foreigners? A meal with them? 
That's what he does. He had to be perplexed why he'd want to eat with this dusty, dirty tribe of Hebrew nomads and prepare them a feast. But he does. And so he, he functions. He makes his way. He gets going here. And verse 18. Now, the men were afraid. The, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, as soon as they, they, they're, they're getting close to the house, you see the guilt just rising up in them. And it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks for the first time that we were being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves and our donkeys. And so, verse 19, they came near to Joseph's house steward and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. It's like they get to the entrance of the house. They are so overwhelmed with guilt. They just start talking. I mean, right now would be a really good time to be quiet. No, 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 no. Look, verse 20 and said, oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about verse 21. When we came to the lodging place, we opened one of our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of a sack, our money in full. Oh, so we have brought it back in our hand. We want to make sure that you got this all straight. Verse 22. And we have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. I mean, you can just see the guilt that is just overwhelming them. And why is it that they, they function this way? Because when you're feeling guilty, it magnifies anxiety. William Shakespeare in his play, King Henry VI, wrote, Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. And that's what's happening here with Joseph's brothers. I read of a a letter that was submitted to the IRS, the Bureau of Internal Revenue, and it said this. Dear sir, it began, I haven't been able to sleep because last year when I filled out my income tax report, I deliberately misrepresented my income. I'm enclosing a check for one hundred and fifty dollars. The closing line of this letter said this. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. And, and so that's what, that's what Gil says. You know, it kind of gets to a point where like, I've got to do something. Now, this guy he hasn't come exactly full circle where he's actually willing to do all the right things. But that's what's going on here. Guilt is overwhelming these boys. And then Pharaoh Steward, he's bilingual. He's heard enough because these, these boys are Hebrew. They can't speak Egyptian. Verse 23, he said, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God, Elohim, and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. This this steward gives these boys a theology lesson and a good one at that. He says, you know what? I had your money. And God is the one. Who's provided it? The God of your father. This must have been alarming. First of all, it tells us what kind of influence Joseph had. Joseph not only lived out his faith in a personal way, but he obviously conveyed it to the people that he was with. Either this Hebrew steward has also become a believer in the God of Revelation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or he knows exactly how Joseph speaks. And he tells them, listen, God is the one who has given to you. Elohim has showed up and he has been gracious to you. You know, these boys never, ever consider that that they're receiving the money and Simeon coming back and that he's well and all the grain that was given to them was an act of grace. Do you know why? Because they always lived under guilt. And when you live under guilt, it's it's very hard for you to ever live with grace. It's hard for you to be gracious. 
It's hard for you to receive it. It always works that way. And yet that's what grace is, unmerited favor. These boys know very little about that. But he's saying, the steward is, your God is the one who has given this to you. You see, God often works through human agents. That's one of the things that this steward is teaching these boys. God is the great provider in our life. And let me tell you, when you see yourself in the hand of God, you begin to live differently. And one of the ways that you live differently is that you can treat people graciously. You know why Joseph can do this and why he can be so free in giving these things? It's because Joseph lives with a full awareness that he's in the hand of God and he's able to treat people with grace, kindness, and superabundance. Well, the bells start dinging, 12 o'clock Verse 26, verse 25. So they they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon and they heard that they were to eat a meal there. I'm sure they were going, what in the world? What? How could this possibly? What is going on here? Verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present, which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Once again, this is a fulfillment of the dreams that Joseph was given when he was a boy back in Genesis 37. And they're probably going, what is going to happen? Is this some sort of setup where he's just going to come upon us and just turn us into slaves? Then verse 27. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And look at verse 28. They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. These guys are on the ground. They answer the question and they bow down. And I want you to see in verse 28, they refer to their father, Jacob, as your servant. Remember in the second dream that Joseph was given, even his father and mother would bow down. This seems to be a fulfillment of that dream. And as he lifted his eyes, he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. This is a scene that actually kind of defies description. Having not seen his brother for 22 years, he sees, is this, is this your youngest brother? And this is his own son. I mean, his own, his own brother. He has missed all those birthdays every season. This is the first time he had seen him since, since Benjamin was just a little boy. And he says, may God... See how freely the word, the name of God flows from him. May God be gracious to you, my son. The thought of the dreams being fulfilled, his brothers seeing Benjamin, the thought of his mother, his father. It's all too much. And it's like a dam that just starts breaking inside him. He literally just starts collapsing. He runs out. He is just breaking down and he runs out because he doesn't want to reveal who he is or for them to know just how greatly moved he is by this scene. He runs out, he goes to his room, there he is sobbing, and so we see this situation here. He's deeply moved, verse 30, he hurried out, he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. And then, when he was all done crying, then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. Now, Imagine if you're in the scene, you're down on the ground. He goes, is this your youngest brother? And then he sees it. All of a sudden, the guy in charge, he leaves for a while. And they're like, okay, what, what's going on? What, what do we do here? Then he comes back after a little while. 
Like, what, what was that? Did he get paged? No, there's not pagers. That's coming about 4,000 years from now. What, what's going on here, you know? And then he says, it's time to eat. It must have been a serious scene, but actually right now, things are about to get a little bit humorous. There's a little humor. It's almost like comic relief that is taking place here. He says, all right, serve the meal. Now, what is pretty interesting about here is so, verse 32, so they served him by himself. So Joseph is by himself. He's royalty. He eats alone and them by themselves. Okay, and so you've got the brothers. They're in another place. And then you have the Egyptians who ate with him. They're by themselves. So you've got three groups of people. You've got Joseph, you've got the brothers here, and you've got all Egyptians. And they're eating together. It's like eating at a restaurant where you're all together, but you're, not at, you're at different tables and you're not really interacting with each other. Well, that's what's going on here. And there's a reason why they're doing this. Because in verse 32... When that you could see that he says this. So they served him by himself. They by themselves. And they're all sitting by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. OK, this the, this is like about as strong as word as it gets. It's literally an abomination. Perhaps it's because of all the body hair that these guys have. And Egyptians like I can't even get near this guy. Like, we can't. We stay away. And there then this next scene just staggers them. Verse 33 now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. Now, this is staggering. Let me tell you why. He has them seated from oldest to youngest. There's 11. Now, some of you are math scholars, but let me let me tell you the probability of that happening for that just to randomly like you sit here, you sit here because Joseph has them all seated. He knows their birth order. They don't know that he knows this. There are no less than 39,917,000 different orders for 11 people to be seated at. I don't know if that's, that's a lot. And they're all seated there like this. And they're like, how could that be? How? He either has supernatural power or he knows far more about them than they ever gave him credit for. And so they're just staggered by this. And then in verse 34, he, speaking of Joseph, took portions of them from his own table but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And so they feasted and drank freely with him. Now, there's something else. And now they're seated in order. The youngest there. Now, the oldest, Reuben, should have perhaps, if they were going to honor him, you get a double portion and it would go to the oldest. OK, well, he, what Joseph does is he gives five times as much to the youngest. This was totally a break out of protocol. And so here you've got all this heaps of food here with, with the, uh, the youngest boy. And, they're, and you're like, what's going on? Why, what is Joseph doing? You know what he's doing? He's testing them. He's testing to find out if they are still jealous of the youngest son of Rachel. And do they start to uh, turn on him? He, it's another test. He wants to see where their heart really is. And you know there is a deep work in your heart when you can weep with those who weep and you can rejoice with those who rejoice. He wants to see what happens when the youngest boy is not favored by a special coat, but by a ton of food. And that's what he's doing. And you know what? They pass the, taste, the test greatly. They're feasting. They drink free with him. There seems to be no problem. Now, I'm not completely sure about this next point here, so I just want to put that right out there. But... I'm wondering if perhaps this is where the, the big Texan challenge came from. You know, you know that restaurant in Amarillo? 
you know, or they have that 72-ounce steak that they serve you, and you got the salad, the baked potato, the dinner roll, and the, the shrimp cocktail. They, they probably wouldn't have the shrimp cocktail back then, but, you know, I wonder if that's where it came from. You know, in Amarillo, if you can eat all that in an hour or less, it's free, all right? Has anybody ever tried it? I really want someone from our church to do this so we can say that we got someone that did it and ate it in an hour. You know, the record was, is 8 minutes and 52 seconds, so I know we got somebody that can do this, but... If you're, if you're new to Texas and you're like, hey, what is this? There's a restaurant in Amarillo that, that does this, and you need to know something. Here in Texas, we take our sports and our food seriously. In fact, we even combine them, okay? And so I don't know if this is where the big Texan comes from, but Benjamin has got to be overwhelmed. He's like, yeah, I'm skinny, but this is ridiculous. You know, he's got all this food piled on there, and there's brisket and sausage and, you know, stuffed potatoes and cornbread and fried okra. If, it's, if Egypt is any like Texas, this is what's going on here, and his plate is overwhelmed. But there's something that's going on here, and what's happening is that they are learning about grace. They came to Egypt full of fear. Fearing the worst, perhaps that they would never even leave there, that they would die there. And they are being overwhelmed by grace. Grace being expressed through one of God's people who sees himself in his hand through the life of Joseph. You see, this is all possible because Joseph had made a decision long before he ever saw those boys to forgive them. To forgive them of their wickedness and their mistreatment. And when he does see them, he demonstrates and treats them with great grace. He doesn't remind them of their wrongs. He doesn't torture them. He doesn't beat them. He does none of that. He gives them a banquet of grace. And when we see ourselves in the hand of God, we begin to live life differently. And Joseph is an amazing portrayal of the grace of God that comes to us like in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, think of it. We are guilty, we have sinned, we're fearing the worst from God, we sense the distance. And Jesus comes to this earth and he takes our sin and he pays the penalty for it on the cross. He he rises again on the third day and he lavishes us with grace. He doesn't want us living in guilt or in fear. He wants us to know the greatness of his love. And isn't that the story of our life as believers in Christ? His grace has been immeasurably great. It is immense. It is the gospel. And so, friends, when we when we see ourselves in the hand of God, we begin to live life differently. And that's what I want to challenge you to do this week. I want you even beginning today to start to see yourself as I am truly in God's hand and start to think about your life differently, your attitudes, your hopes. Your dreams, how you see some of the challenges in your life, realizing I'm right here in God's hand and I'm trusting him. And when you do, we respond to life differently when we see ourselves in his hand. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your amazing word. Recording the events in the life of Joseph and his brothers and how we see that when we truly view ourselves in your hand, When our focus is fixed upon you, we live differently. Father, for someone who has come here today who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, they know all about guilt and fear. Lord, I pray that they would just pray with me and say, Lord, you know about my sin and my failings, about my fear and my guilt. I turn from myself 
And I turn to Jesus, the Savior. And I ask, Lord, that I might experience the fullness of life found in the Son. And Father, for all of us, help us to see our lives in your hands. And would you bear much fruit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.